Bye, listeners. We're off again this week, so in lieu of a new episode, we're highlighting one of our best of 2022, Episode 7, Murder on the Railway. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Scotland Yard Confidential, but in the meantime, enjoy. July the 9th, 1864, London, England. At the Hackney Wick Rail Station, two gentlemen impatiently await their train. It's after 10pm, and Harry Venez and Sidney Jones are exhausted after a long day working at Robarts Curtis & Co., a well-respected bank in the city. They long to return home and rest for a precious few hours, but their train is running late. Venez leans over the tracks, straining his eyes in the dim light provided by the thin, crescent moon in the sky. Finally, he sees it approaching, and the bankers step back as the train pulls into the station with a plume of black smoke billowing down its spine. Venez and Jones make their way to the first-class carriage, their top hats and long coats silhouetted in the sickly yellow light of the gas lamps. Handing their tickets to the conductor, they enter one of the lush compartments reserved for men of their station. With varnished teak walls and midnight blue velvet seats, these private booths are a far cry from the sweaty, overcrowded scene in the rear of the train. After placing their bags in the hanging luggage racks, the two men flop down on the plush seats and look at one another in the dim, smoky light of the flickering lamp. They're relieved to finally be heading home. But something about the compartment is off. A strange, sickly sweet smell permeates the air. And it's not long before Venez and Jones realize their seats are damp. The bankers abruptly stand up to investigate and realize that their finely tailored trousers are now soaked through with something warm and sticky. Jones moves his hand towards the gas lamp to get a better look. His palm has turned crimson, dripping with what can only be blood. Jones and Venez begin to cry out in horror, yelling down the darkened corridor and out onto the platform for assistance. At the same time, several ladies rush out of the neighbouring compartment. Their fine dresses are speckled with dots of crimson, and they shakily explain that during the journey, they'd opened their window only to be showered by a mist of blood. The commotion is heard by 38-year-old train guard, Benjamin Ames. Ames is already in an anxious mood, what with the train running five minutes behind. He's desperate to get back on schedule and rolls his eyes as he makes his way to the first-class carriage. He's sure it's just some posh passengers making a fuss over a slight mess. Begrudgingly, he grabs a bright hand lamp and heads to carriage 69. When he reaches the compartment, he finds Venez and Jones standing in the corridor, faces drained of colour. Inching past them, he shines his powerful lamp into the compartment. A scene of horror emerges from the blackness. On the left-hand seat, nearest the engine, pools of blood stagnate in the buttoned indentations of the cushions. A clump of what looks to be flesh 
sticks to the window pane, seeping out a thin, ruby-red stream. Silently, Ames steps in closer. The driver calls out, awaiting the signal to depart, but he's too shaken to answer. The adjacent seats are covered in what appear to be bloody handprints, as though someone had tried to wipe themselves clean before departing the carriage. Blood even drips lightly from the ceiling, staining the shoulder of his uniform. There's no mistaking it. A violent attack had taken place, one that, considering the volume of blood which now painted the walls, may have been fatal. Ames is astounded. It would have been impossible for anyone outside the private compartment to have seen what transpired. But how could such a frenzied attack have happened without anyone knowing? He'd seen no sign of a wounded man or bloodied attacker descending from the train at this or at the previous station. He also certainly hadn't heard any screams for help. But then, the engine is so loud when the train is in motion that it's difficult to hear anything at all. As the shock begins to wear off, Ames's eyes flick to a few discarded items left within the compartment. On the furthest left-hand seat of the carriage is a discarded black leather bag. Its brass lock has been opened and is covered in rapidly drying blood. Nearby is a flattened black hat with a label that reads T.H. Walker, Crawford Street. On the floor, Ames finds a heavy wooden cane adorned with an ivory knob at the top, also covered in blood. Ames hears the driver call out again. He quickly straightens himself up and leaves the compartment, locking the door behind him. No matter what happened, the train must run to its terminus or the entire line will be shut down. He tells the Hackney station master to send a telegram to the railway superintendent informing him of the situation heads back into the brake van and signals the driver to continue. Jones and Venez look on in a daze as the train steams off into the night, carrying with it the gruesome crime scene. They don't know it yet, but they've just become a part of criminal history. The horrific events that occurred in that doomed carriage will go on to inspire detective books and films for generations to come. This is the very first railway murder. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps, of some of the greatest detectives in history.
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. As the bloodied carriage speeds off into the night, another grisly discovery is being made. At around 10.15pm, the headlight of an empty train heading to its terminus pierces through the darkness. The engineer, weary at his post, watches as the obscured scenery flits past him in a blur. He's made this journey hundreds of times and knows the route like the back of his own hand. Which is why, when he sees a strange shape lying between the tracks as the train heads towards the canal bridge, he stops. It could be a dead animal, Best to move it out of the way, just in case. Remaining at the helm, the engineer sends his stoker and guard to investigate. Holding torches, the two men walk back along the darkened tracks. A warm breeze rustles the overgrown grass, creating the haunting sound of thousands of disembodied whispers. The sharp crescent moon illuminating the landscape looks like a cruel smile in the sky. After a few minutes of walking, the men see the object in the distance. It's a lumpy mass of some kind, contorted in a strange, unnatural way. Looking to the left, they see the shining lights of Hackney and hear loud voices coming from a pub only a few yards away. It's probably a dog, they assure one another. Someone's unfortunate pet run down by an oncoming train. But as they approach, they realize with horror that the form which lies ahead of them is distinctly human. An old man, to be exact, his body looking twisted and broken as it lies between the tracks. The two men rush to his side and see a thick river of blood pouring from his badly beaten face. At first glance, they're sure he must be dead. But miraculously, they detect a faint heartbeat. Acting quickly, they hoist the old man up and begin carrying his unconscious body to the nearby pub. Patrons sitting outside rush to help, while others call for the police. Local Beats Bobby, PC Duggan, hears their cries and rushes to the scene. 
He quickly takes control of the situation and orders the injured man to be moved to a small, private room in the back of the bar. The old man's life force is leaving him quickly. His face is ghastly grey in colour, and his lush, white beard is soaked in the blood that flows freely from his mouth and several jagged wounds on his head. PC Duggan sets about trying to identify the dying man. Gingerly, he reaches into his trouser pockets and finds some loose change, keys, and a torn first-class ticket stub. Finally, PC Duggan finds some letters in the dying man's coat pocket. They are addressed to a Mr. Thomas Briggs at Roberts, Curtis & Co. Bank. Duggan sends for a runner to notify the family, and soon the victim is positively identified as 69-year-old banker Thomas Briggs. As the hours wear on, doctors cycle in and out of the pub's back room, attempting to revive him, but his condition only worsens. At 11.45 the following morning, he succumbs to his injuries and dies. But how did a fine, elderly gentleman end up bloodied and discarded on a desolate railway track? And how did his killer vanish without a trace from a crowded train? For answers, they must now turn to the detectives at Scotland Yard. On the morning of July the 10th, 1864, news of the bloodied rail car and Thomas Briggs' death earlier that day reaches Police Commissioner Sir Richard Mayne at Scotland Yard HQ. Officers are already inspecting the crime scene and an autopsy is due to take place in the coming days. It's up to the officers in Maine's elite unit to put all the pieces together. Over 20 years ago, in 1842, Maine created a brand new species of police inspector. These men, unlike the uniformed beat bobbies, were not concerned with crime prevention. No, these plainclothes officers' duty was to solve crimes after they occurred, an entirely new concept in policing. It's taken a long time to gain the public's trust since those early days. Traditionally, the Metropolitan Police wore dark blue uniforms with visible badge numbers and tall top hats. They were highly recognisable walking their designated beats, and while in many ways this deterred criminals, It also made it impossible for officers to investigate crimes after the fact. They couldn't discreetly question witnesses, tail suspects, or go undercover. Maine campaigned for a plain-clothed detective unit for years, but the public was strongly against the idea of a secret police. But when the detective branch of Scotland Yard was finally set up, Maine's new breed of crime busters quickly became heroes in the public imagination. Writers like Charles Dickens were fascinated by them and wrote popular stories inspired by their antics. Commissioner Maine is thus under considerable pressure to live up to the public's expectations. With this being Britain's first railway murder, Londoners will be scared and demanding a swift resolution. So Maine decides to put his best detective on the case, a man he himself describes as brilliant. Detective Inspector 
Richard Tanner. Richard Tanner joined the Metropolitan Police in 1851, aged 19. Five foot seven, with piercing blue eyes and an honest face, he made a name for himself working the beats, immersing himself in London's underworld and rounding up all manner of roughs. But he always had his eye on the detective branch and watched his heroes closely, jotting down their methods of interrogation and evidence-gathering tactics in his notebook. Tanner learned by observation that good detective work was more about dogged determination than superior intellect. Being willing to dedicate your whole life to a case, only resting when the criminal was behind bars. Now, at 31 years old, he's finally been promoted to detective inspector and the Thomas Briggs murder is his first major case. The press and public will be carefully scrutinizing his every move as he hunts down a killer. If he succeeds, it will be a historic win for Scotland Yard. If he fails, he may never be put on a big case again. The railway murder could make or break Detective Tanner. Detective Tanner knows that he must be quick to make progress. Discoveries in the first few days of an investigation are critical for momentum, public confidence and morale within the force. He takes stock of the evidence that constables on the scene have already uncovered. Amongst the carnage inside the compartment, they found a gold jump link from a watch chain lodged in the floorboards, indicating that the killer had forcefully ripped Briggs's pocket watch from his breast. Indeed, the watch appears to be the only item missing from the old man's person. For Tanner, this information is crucial in establishing a motive. The victim's diamond, ring, snuff box, and loose change adding up to almost five pounds, the equivalent to a month's wages for a laborer, were all left untouched. Based on this, he surmises that the attack was spontaneous and the assailant was working alone. They simply reached for the most visible object before savagely beating Briggs and throwing him out the window. The hurriedness of the attack is also evidenced by the crushed hat left behind. Briggs's family had assured investigators that the hat found in the carriage did not belong to the victim. Thomas Briggs was a fine gentleman known for wearing a silk top hat, made especially for him by Dignance, a high-class hatter in the city. The one at the crime scene was made by T.H. Walker and of a far inferior quality. Detective Tanner believes that the murderer had been in such a hurry that he grabbed Briggs's hat by mistake and in so doing, left behind the only physical clue to his identity. Tanner wastes no time in having posters drawn up containing detailed descriptions of the stolen watch, chain and the discarded hat. A £200 reward for information, the equivalent of several years of wages for London's working-class households, is raised. Thousands of these posters are distributed throughout London, plastered outside police stations, pubs, newsstands, railway stations, and on the sides of omnibuses. The line has been cast. Now Tanner must wait for a bite. 
Meanwhile, inspectors on Tanner's team are piecing together Thomas Briggs's actions on the day of his murder. By talking to his family, they find out that Briggs was chief clerk at Roberts, Curtis and Co. Bank. He, along with his wife, her widowed sister and their unmarried daughter, all lived in a fine house in the affluent suburb of Hackney. The Briggs, like so many other well-to-do families, had left the grime and corruption of the inner city once the railway was built. On July the 9th, 1864, Thomas Briggs left his home at 8am sharp, as usual. After work, he headed to his favourite niece's house in Peckham for dinner, arriving at almost exactly 5pm. Three hours later, he began his journey back to Hackney, walking for a while to enjoy the balmy summer night air. He reached the Fenchurch Street station just in time to catch the 9.45pm train back to Hackney, but it was running late. When it finally arrived at 9.50, Briggs settled into the sumptuous first-class compartment at the front of the train. With the day at last over, the old man allowed himself to relax. It's easy when travelling late at night by train to forget just where and when you are. The outside world becomes an amorphous blur as you speed through the darkness. You're out of time and space, isolated in the world of the carriage. Perhaps, in this moment, Thomas Briggs dropped his defences, allowing the metallic hum of the engine to lull him to sleep. Only to be awoken minutes later by a shadowy figure forcing their way into his compartment. Based on where the body of Thomas Briggs was found, Detective Tanner is able to estimate the time at which the attack occurred. Briggs was discovered 1,434 yards from Bow and 740 yards from Hackney Wick, meaning he had been thrown from the carriage approximately two-thirds of the way between the two stations. The train guard, Benjamin Ames, testified that this journey took between four and five minutes, so Tanner estimates that the attack took place around 10.04pm, 3.5 minutes after the train left Bow Station. It appears that Briggs's attacker had meant to throw him over the canal bridge as the train crossed it, but missed the mark. That, or he was aiming for the opposite track so that the body would be hit by an oncoming train, destroying any evidence of an attack. This would explain how the body got there. But how did the attacker seemingly vanish into thin air? Detective Tanner's men have already questioned all the officials working at Hackneywick Station the night of the murder, and no one saw a bloodied man fleeing the carriage. In dismay, Tanner realises how easy it would have been for the attacker to have leapt from the moving train between stations and disappear into the marshes around Duckett Canal or the seething slums of Old Ford. His only hope is that the killer had somehow slipped up after the attack boasted to a friend, perhaps, flashed his new golden pocket watch to a lady he admired, or perhaps even tried to sell the stolen goods. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Luckily, tips are starting to flood in to Scotland Yard, thanks to the posters and press coverage. And one is about to blow the investigation wide open. On the morning of Monday, July the 11th, a little over 24 hours since Thomas Briggs's body was discovered, Detective Tanner sits in his office, scouring through the mountain of tips on his desk. Already he's under mounting pressure from the public, with news of Briggs's murder now plastered across every newspaper headline. Homicide is commonplace in a big city like London, but this one is different. Briggs, you see, was a gentleman who had been attacked in a first-class carriage. The events had instantly shattered the middle and upper classes sense of security. Maybe they weren't as safe in their ivory towers as they thought. The fact that Briggs's murder took place on a train also played into the public's growing distrust of the railways. Since the 1850s, advocates had campaigned for the installation of some means of communication between passengers and the train guard, but their suggestions had been ignored. As a result, Thomas Briggs was left to die alone, his cries for help unheard over the roar of the engine. Detective Tanner knows that for the public to feel safe again, he needs to catch this killer, and fast. But most of the tips he received so far are false, reading like something out of one of Dickens's stories. Many point the finger at the two bankers who discovered the bloodied compartment. After all, wasn't it quite suspicious that they worked at the same bank as Briggs? Tanner brushes these off as dramatic conspiracies. From his years working some of London's seediest beats, he knows firsthand that the majority of criminals are far from masterminds. Most of the time, robberies that end in murder are acts of pure desperation. London's slums grow more crowded and diseased by the day. The city has only just gotten over the deadly Broad Street cholera outbreak that claimed 10,000 lives. London's poor are yearning to escape the squalor of tenement housing, and Tanner is willing to bet that the killer he's after saw the elderly Mr. Briggs as his ticket out of poverty. One tip that's shared with Tanner by his colleague, Inspector Kerrissey, stands out. It's from the owner of a prosperous jewellery business located not far from Briggs's bank. Reading the man's name, 
Detective Tanner smirks. John, death. Death claims that a man had come in that very morning to exchange a gold chain matching the description with its hook missing. The men agree that there may just be something to it, and Kerosy heads out to interview the jeweller. Inspector Kerosy hails a cab and sits in contemplative silence as the horse-drawn carriage pulls away from Scotland Yard HQ and heads towards number 55 Cheapside, right in the beating heart of London's business district. He finds John Death in his small, dimly lit shop, filled with cases containing glittering gold pieces and gems. The jeweler tells him that earlier that day, a man of about 30 years of age came into his store to exchange a heavy, old-fashioned gold watch chain for something more lightweight and modern. Death valued the chain at around £3.10, shillings, and the young man selected a replacement valued at five shillings less. To make up the difference, Death offered him a second-hand signet ring set with a white cornelian stone engraved with the figure of a head. The whole interaction took less than ten minutes, but afterwards the jeweller realised something about it seemed off. The young man had seemingly gone to pains to stand in the shadows and turned his face away so it was always partly concealed. Still, Death noted that he was blonde with a very pale, sallow face that bore no beard or side whiskers. Importantly, the mysterious customer had a foreign accent, either Swiss or German, the jeweler guessed. Inspector Kerosy asks Death to show him the chain the man had exchanged. Pulling out a magnifying glass, he carefully inspects it. He finds no traces of blood, but dirt is visible on the inside of the links. The chain evidently had not been cleaned before being exchanged, and the absence of blood suggests it was ripped from Briggs's vest before the attack occurred. Wasting no time, Inspector Kerosy thanks Death and heads straight for Briggs's home in Hackney. There the chain is shown to his grieving daughter. She gasps when she sees it and breaks down in tears. There is no doubt in her mind. The chain is her father's. Inspector Kerosy feels a shiver run down his spine. John Death had come face to face with the murderer only hours ago. The description of the murderer is a breakthrough in the case, but frustratingly, the killer had not left his name or address during the transaction with Death. Detective Tanner is left with no choice but to once again have posters distributed and wait for tips to come through. Like before, the offices of Scotland Yard are flooded with false leads. Every young, male, German immigrant falls under suspicion in the public's eyes. The same questions cycle torturously through Tanner's tired mind. To whom did the crushed hat belong? Why did the killer exchange Briggs's chain rather than sell it? And, most dauntingly, how will he possibly find his suspect amongst London's masses? As the investigation enters its second week, London is struck by a heatwave. Untreated human waste from homes not yet connected to the new sewerage system flows down the River Thames and stagnates in cellars. 
The whole city smells of decay. But it is against this unforgiving backdrop that the murder of Thomas Briggs will finally be solved. On July the 18th, 1864, in front of the splendid Great Western Hotel near Paddington Station, Hackney carriage driver Jonathan Matthews stops to water his horse. His bright red four-seater cab has been crisscrossing across London in the sweltering heat for nearly 12 hours. He's tired and plans to call it a day soon. But as his horse eagerly gulps down water from the trough, Matthews sees Tanner's poster containing the description of the suspect, crumpled hat and watch. The name of the jeweler catches his eye. John Death. It's certainly a strange name, but that's not why Matthews takes notice. He realizes he's seen it before. On a small cardboard box that his German immigrant friend had recently given his daughter to play with. Matthews is not keen to involve his friend in the investigation, but once he sees the reward money, now 300 pounds, he wastes no time. Wrenching his horse's head from the trough, he rushes home to collect the box before speeding off to the nearest police station. Matthews' account makes the on-duty officer's ears prick up. Not only does he produce the box, which clearly displays John Death's name and address, but his friend, 24-year-old German tailor Franz Müller, fits the description to a T. Furthermore, Matthews testifies that he had bought Müller a hat from T.H. Walker of Crawford Street a few months back. If you'll recall, the crumbled hat found at the crime scene bore the exact same name. The officers waste no time. They order Matthews to drive them to his home so that they can get a statement from his wife, Eliza, who had seen Muller only a few days prior. The carriage clatters down the cobblestones, slicing through the muggy night air at top speed. Finally, it reaches its destination in the poor neighborhood of Lisson Grove on the borders of Paddington. Sitting in their modest home, shared with two other working class families, Eliza corroborates everything Matthews told the officers and goes into even further detail. Two days after the murder, on July the 11th, 1864, Muller had come by to tell her that he was leaving for New York City. Muller, she explains, is a likable fellow, but prone to boasting. He spent three hours bragging that the city tailors for whom he worked were sending him to America on the impressive salary of 150 pounds a year. Muller's ship, or so he said, had finally come in. During the meeting, he not only showed off his shiny new gold watch and chain, but also a pinky ring with a white Cornelian face, the very same kind John Death described. Eliza noticed that Muller was walking with a noticeable limp, an injury he claimed occurred when a letter cart ran over his foot. As the young German said his goodbyes and got up to leave, he put on what Eliza believed to be a new black top hat, the sort typically only worn by distinguished upper-class gentlemen. The officers 
are now convinced that Franz Muller is their man. But it appears he may have already fled the country. With no time to waste, the police notify Detective Tanner of their discovery immediately. It's well after midnight now, but Tanner insists on heading directly to the address the Matthews provide for Muller. At 1am on Tuesday, July the 19th, he arrives at 16 Park Terrace Old Ford on the border of Bethnal Green and Bow. Tanner notes that it's just a 10 minutes walk from Duckett's Canal, where Briggs's body was found. All the lights in the house are off and the detective can observe no movement. Rather than head home and come back in the morning, he decides to wait until first light. As the hours pass, he busies himself by constructing a picture of Franz Muller in his mind. The watch chain he exchanged was valued at three pounds, the equivalent of a three to four weeks wage for a tailor like Muller. Yet he had chosen not to pawn it. Why? The answer, Detective Tanner believes, can be found in Eliza Matthews' testimony. Muller is prone to boasting, taking every chance he can to make himself appear more wealthy, more refined than he truly is. This means he envisions himself as being somehow above his station, destined for greatness but trapped within London slums. It wasn't just Mr. Briggs' watch he wanted, it was his life. Maybe that's why he wasn't content with simply stealing the old man's belongings and fleeing. Briggs had to die for the new and improved Franz Muller to be born. As the sun rises over London at around 6am, Detective Tanner begins to see signs of life within 16 Park Terrace. He knocks on the door and is met by Muller's landlady, Mrs. Blythe. Blythe apologises to Tanner but her tenant no longer lives here. In fact, he'd left just five days ago, on July the 14th. Shortly after the attack on Thomas Briggs, Muller had gone around to his friends to raise the four pounds needed to gain passage on a transatlantic vessel to New York. A fee which would have been more than taken care of had he only been willing to pawn Briggs' gold watch and chain. Disappearing back into the house, she re-emerges with a letter bearing the heading of a ship called the Victoria. It reads, On the sea, July the 16th in the morning. Dear friends, I am glad to confess that I cannot have a better time as I have. If the sun shines nice and the wind blows fair as it is at this present moment, everything will go well. Detective Tanner is too late. Franz Muller is now in the belly of a ship headed for America, presently embroiled in its bloody civil war. Should he make it there, he will disappear almost instantly into the chaos of the conflict. Detective Tanner has no time to waste. There is no way of contacting the victorious captain, of course, and with the transatlantic telegraph cable not yet laid, he has no means of alerting the American authorities of Muller's arrival. The only option is for him to beat Muller to New York. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Luckily, the Victoria is an old-fashioned wooden sailing ship. It will take her at least 29 days to reach New York City if she's not held up by storms. Police Commissioner Maine issues a warrant for Muller's arrest and orders Detective Tanner and his accompanying officer, Sergeant Clark, to leave within the hour. John Death and Jonathan Matthews are to join them to act as witnesses. The next ship headed to New York City departs from Liverpool tomorrow morning, Wednesday, July the 20th. The City of Manchester is a modern, iron-hulled steamer expected to arrive at its destination in under a fortnight, which would give the team a few days' advantage. Thankfully, they're able to secure second-class cabins. Steerage tickets on most ships leaving Europe have all been sold out for weeks. An average of 132,000 immigrants arrive at Ellis Island every day, lured by the promise of $1,000 for joining the Union Army. Tanner, Sergeant Clark, Matthews and Death make the journey without incident and arrive in New York City on August the 5th, 1864. Detective Tanner finds out from the Victoria's owners that the ship is making slow progress. It's not due to arrive for another two weeks, giving him ample time to arrange for Muller's extradition. But as the days roll by, Tanner becomes increasingly aware of an unforeseen issue. A Confederate pirate ship, the Tallahassee, has been regularly taking ships off the coast of New York. On August the 12th, it captures the Victoria's sister ship, the Adriatic, and casts its 124 passengers ashore. Anxious, Tanner sends a pilot boat to intercept the Victoria a few days later, but it too is captured by the Confederate pirates. If Muller's ship is taken, it will quickly vanish into the wilds of America, and all Scotland Yard's efforts will have been for nothing. In spite of all his planning, Detective Tanner's efforts are now at the mercy of the raging civil war. It is not until August the 24th, 1864, that Detective Tanner is able to breathe a sigh of relief. After 40 days at sea, the Victoria is spotted off of Sandy Hook, beginning to make her way into the lower bay. At this point, news of the fugitive's arrival has spread through the press like wildfire and thousands of New Yorkers have gathered on the Staten Island shoreline to catch a glimpse of the foreign killer. 
As the now infamous ship passes in front of them, the crowd begins crying out, How are you, Muller the murderer? In a pilot ship, Sergeant Clark, John Death, Jonathan Matthews, and an NYPD officer speed past the onlookers. Detective Tanner is not with them, forced instead to head into the city to sort out the final paperwork for Muller's extradition. The men board the Victoria just before six o'clock and head straight for the captain's cabin, who has no idea that he's been carrying a fugitive all this time. The officers, Death and Matthews, follow him out to the deck where he begins calling out the names of steerage passengers to be inspected by the ship's quarantine doctor. Several men and women step forward to have their foreheads, mouths and eyes examined for signs of diseases known to run rampant through the cramped quarters of ship's bowels. Finally, the captain calls Franz Muller. From the crowd emerges a small, unassuming young man with a shock of blonde hair and a pale face. His clothes are shabby, but excellently tailored. Jonathan Matthews and John Death both recognize him instantly and nod to the officers. As Muller moves towards the quarantine doctor, Sergeant Clark and the NYPD officer grab his arms. Muller does not jump in fright or begin to shake. He simply turns to them and calmly asks in a mild German accent, what is the matter? But his composure quickly falls away when Sergeant Clark explains he's under arrest for the murder of Thomas Briggs occurring on July the 9th, 1864. Eyes bulging from his head, Muller protests that he had never even taken the North London Railway, has never even heard the name Briggs. Ignoring his words, Sergeant Clark orders for Muller's suitcase to be brought to him. Rummaging through its contents, he finds a few stained shirts, a pair of work trousers, shears, and a measure for tailoring, nothing out of the ordinary. But tucked away neatly in the corner, Clark spies the black silken top of a hat. Picking it up, he reads the label on the inside. Dignance Royal Exchange. The inspector shivers. This must be Briggs's hat but it appears the tailor has altered it slightly so that the top sits lower on the crown. At the bottom of the case, Clark finds a small pouch, no bigger than the palm of his hand, delicately tied with a ribbon. He pulls it open and out tumbles a heavy gold pocket watch. Muller's face falls as he hurriedly explained that he bought the watch from a man on the London docks two years ago. Unmoved, Clark pulls out his magnifying glass and reads the serial number. It's an exact match. The watch he now holds in his palm is the very same that was ripped from Thomas Briggs's body moments before he was murdered. Seven weeks and 3,000 miles later, Scotland Yard has finally caught their railway killer. Franz Muller is extradited on September the 3rd, 1864, and arrives in the United Kingdom on September the 15th. 
Remarkably, during the voyage, the young man took a liking to Detective Tanner, who lent him Dickens' Pickwick Papers and David Copperfield to pass the time. The police are very kind, he later says, particularly Mr. Tanner. Awaiting trial, he is held at Holloway Prison, where he protests his innocence to everyone within earshot. He is sure that when his trial comes around on October the 27th, he'll be able to prove it. Unfortunately for Muller, however, this is not the case. His trial at the Old Bailey lasts just three days. Not only were Mr. Briggs's belongings found in his suitcase, but during the transatlantic chase, investigators searched his abandoned flat and discovered torn pieces of a coat covered in human blood stuffed up the chimney. Muller's attorneys argue that this evidence is circumstantial and claim that their client is being targeted because he is a poor German immigrant. But it's no use. The jury takes just 15 minutes to deliberate. Franz Muller is pronounced guilty of the murder of Thomas Briggs and sentenced to hang. The execution of Franz Muller takes place in front of the Old Bailey on November the 14th, 1864. His is to be one of the last public executions in British history. 50,000 onlookers turn up to view the grisly spectacle. There is an air of celebration. The masses get drunk on cheap spirits, singing songs and playing games. But as the hours pass, they become more bloodthirsty. Fights break out and they begin to scream Muller's name, demanding the show to begin. Their cries are all heard by the young German tailor, as he is given his dying rites by Dr. Louis Capel, a German-speaking Lutheran pastor. When the prison bell begins to toll at 10 minutes to eight, he walks out the doors of the Old Bailey and onto the scaffold. Muller begins to shake, as the executioner places a white sack over his head and fastens the noose around his neck. Capel approaches him and offers him one last chance to confess his sins. Reportedly, Muller says softly through his hood, Ich habe est getan. I did it. Immediately after, the trapdoor opens and the crowd erupts into a deafening roar. The case of the railway murder made Detective Richard Tanner a star within Scotland Yard. He went on to solve countless high-profile crimes and is even rumoured to be one of the inspirations behind Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. But the murder of Thomas Briggs had an even more long-lasting effect on society. Due to the public outcry surrounding the case, trains began installing communication cords that allowed passengers to contact the railway crew in the event of an emergency. These devices can be seen in some form in nearly every train throughout the world to this day. Reminders of one warm night in 1864 when a bloodied railcar rolled into Hackney Wick Station and changed history. For more information on Britain's first railway murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found 
Mr. Briggs's Hat by Kate Colquhoun, particularly helpful to our research. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In December 2002, a homeless man rooting through bins in Camden makes a grisly discovery. Dismembered body parts lead detectives to a sinister apartment. The walls are covered in bizarre graffiti. More human remains are found in a bedroom, but the occupant is nowhere to be found. Anthony Hardy was once a professional engineer with a wife and family, but his mind has been taken over by darkness and violence. Now he's an out-of-control killer, and the police have no idea where he is. The race is on to find the Camden Ripper before he kills again. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm-hmm.